The Gospel from Luke 4. Jesus returned to Galilee in the power of the Spirit, and news about him spread through the whole countryside. He was teaching in their synagogues, and everyone praised him. He went to Nazareth, where he had been brought up, and on the Sabbath day, he went into the synagogue, as was his custom. He stood up to read, and the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him. Unrolling it, he found the place where it is written, The Spirit of the Lord is on me, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Then he rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant, and sat down. The eyes of everyone in the synagogue were fastened on him. He began by saying to them, Today this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. All spoke well of him and were amazed at the gracious words that came from his lips. Is, isn't this Joseph's son, they asked? Jesus said to them, Surely you will quote this proverb to me, Physician, heal yourself, and you will tell me, do you hear in your hometown what you have heard that you did, what we have heard that you did in Capernaum? Truly, I tell you, he continued, no prophet is accepted in his hometown. I assure you that there are many widows in Israel in Elijah's time when the sky was shut for three and a half years and there was a severe famine throughout the land. Yet Elijah did, was not sent to any of them, but to a widow in Zarephath in the region of Sidon. And there were many in Israel with leprosy in the time of Elisha the prophet, yet not one of them was cleansed, only Naaman the Syrian. All the people in the synagogue were furious when they heard this. They got up, drove him out of the town, and took him to the brow of the hill on which the town was built in order to throw him off the cliff. But he rocked, walked right through the crowd and went on his way. The Gospel of Jesus Christ. Thanks. It's great to be with you, and I hope that you have your coffee and your crash helmets on, because I was out of the pulpit for an entire week, and this is one of my favorite passages in all of Scripture, so you know what that means. We're going to be here a while. I'm just kidding. Hopefully, I'll keep it relatively short, but maybe not relatively painless. We'll see how it goes. But I celebrated New Year's Eve by driving uh, my son, Nick, back to college in Savannah, Georgia, so coast to coast, 2,800 miles, and this is sort of a homegoing for both of us. Both of us were born in Alabama, and you can tell that you're getting into the South because the Carl's Juniors turn into Hardee's, for one thing, and also the churches per intersection goes up dramatically. I swear in some of these small towns there's more churches than there are people, I don't know how they survive. Well, another thing you see, and we have a few of these out here, but you see a number of these gaudy advertisement for God billboards. And one of them says, after you die, you will meet God. Will is italicized. One says, have you read my number one bestseller? There will be a test, God. Now this one, I'm not sure if it's a parody because it's kind of funny. Uh, maybe they're serious, but it says, uh, don't make me come down there, God. 
And then there's the one that I've even seen out here that says, uh, where are you going? And then there's heaven and hell. Of course, heaven has clouds behind it, and hell has, what, flames. And then my uh, very favorite one, which is in Alabama, nowhere else, it says, go to church or the devil will get you. You can see a picture of this one on the email. If you're on our email uh, list, you missed it. These are some of the things that we send out uh, that you're missing out, so sign up. Well, these signs are a dubious strategy, right? How many people see those signs and think, oh, I've never thought of that. I want to be a Christian. I don't know. But it also seems like salvation is sort of a concession that God makes that he's not particularly happy about. And the way that you get it, the way that you meet God, is by being very afraid. That fear is the motivator to reach out to God. Now, Jesus in this passage is a young rabbi. He's in the God advertisement business, if you will. And he's in Nazareth, his childhood home, and he goes to the synagogue to teach on the Sabbath. And it's a fairly typical service. It's much like this service. They open the Scriptures and read a passage, and then there's some commentary on the passage. So Jesus, as Richard alluded to, he's this young hometown rabbi, and he unrolls the scroll of Isaiah. And it's a section that we've labeled now, chapter 61, though it wasn't labeled like that as Jesus read it. And he begins to read about the kingdom of God, good news for the poor, sight to the blind, freedom for prisoners, liberation for the oppressed, proclaiming the year of the Lord's favor. These are wonderful, magnanimous things that God is going to do in His kingdom. Sounds downright lovely. Sounds invitational, very different than these billboards that we read or the preachers that we hear on TV or the radio. Then he rolls up the scroll and he sits down and says, today this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. Now maybe the hearers aren't quite connecting the dots just yet to what Jesus is saying because they're still kind of elated. This hometown rabbi has opened the scroll and he's preaching to us and we're glad to see him. All spoke well of him, verse 22, and we're amazed at his gracious words that came from his lips. Isn't this Joseph's son? they asked. And there's just this small town civic pride that's happening. You can just see the men kind of elbowing each other. You know, I knew him when. I still know his parents. I knew that he was going to turn out well. They're happy that he has amounted to something. But then things change rather quickly because Jesus, it seems, looks out at the crowds and he doesn't believe all of the smiles. He doesn't believe that everyone's happy about the right things. And he kind of pokes at him a little bit. Well, a lot. And he says, I, I suspect you might say to me, quote to me the proverb, physician, heal thyself. And this is a kind of a strange aphorism. But what he means is that do hear what you have done in all the other places. We've heard about how you're doing all of these miracles, and you're doing these fireworks, and we want some home cooking. We want you to do this for us. Let's see some of those miracles. And instead, Jesus tells them two stories. 
One is, truly I tell you that no prophet is accepted in his hometown, and I assure you that there are many widows in Israel in Elijah's time, when the sky was shut for three and a half years and there was severe famine. Yet Elijah was not sent to any of them, but to a widow in Zarephath in the region of Sidon. Now it's understandable if you don't get how provocative this is, because you really have to know the Old Testament. You have to connect the dots. You have to understand the Jewish mindset at this time of how they would have perhaps read this story. But you can see from what Luke tells us is that they go from kind of cheering and look at this guy, he's one of us, to their faces turning red. They're all of a sudden furious, and now they're elbowing each other saying, can you believe this guy? Can you believe the nerve of him? Who does he think he is? See, he's telling them that the kingdom doesn't come to those who think themselves at the center. The kingdom doesn't come upon those who are entitled to it by their own assessment, but to those that you don't expect the kingdom to come to, to this non-Jewish widow. Okay, well, maybe we can allow that. She was a widow after all, but then he goes on. Verse 27, and there were many in Israel with leprosy in the time of Elisha the prophet, yet none of them was cleansed, only Naaman the Syrian. Now, if you've seen the recent Star Wars, Naaman is Emperor Palpatine. Like, that's how they would have thought of him. Not him. Grace cannot go to him. He is a bad, bad dude in the mind, of, in the Jewish mind. Well, what's interesting is that they knew these stories. They knew Isaiah 61. They would have known these stories from 1st and 2nd King, Kings. What is Jesus doing? He's, he's just quoting Scripture to them. One causes them to be celebrative. Way to go, Jesus. We're so proud you're our hometown guy. Then he quotes Scripture to them from 1st Kings, and they get furious. How... Is this happening? Well, they read them, these stories in First and Second Kings, like most religious insiders would have read them. You see, Naaman or a Gentile widow meeting God and receiving his grace and being included, these were sort of interesting anomalies. But they were outliers. They weren't the main story. And so you shouldn't read too much into them. Don't overinterpret these sort of outlier stories. But what Jesus is saying is that these stories of God welcoming the outsider, of God including those who didn't belong, these aren't outlier stories at all. But they're peppered through the Old Testament as sort of clues to where the main story is going. And like any work of literature that's good, it doesn't hit you over the head, you wouldn't read it and say, well, that's just a little bit too on the nose. It tells the main story in ways that kind of grip you in a subtle and a surprising way that you say, oh, oh, now I get it. I didn't see that coming at all. You see, these, these stories, these anecdotes, are clues to where the larger story is going and that the, this story that Jesus has come 
to tell, to advertise, to amplify, to say through me, now you can read the Old Testament in a different way. And you see these outlier stories as being kind of the main event. You see, you get a very different picture of the Bible if you start from Genesis and you read forward and then you hit Numbers, Leviticus, Exodus, you hit Joshua. It's a very different impression of God than if you start with Jesus and read backwards and forwards. And you then begin to read those stories and you think, well, how would this fit into the story of Jesus? You see, it's a very different tone. It gives God a very different feel depending upon your path, and your openness to seeing how God really is. These anecdotes aren't anomalies, but they're literary historical hints. They're bit parts that once the hero finally takes the stage become the main part. And now we're seeing as we see these stories that they're telling us what kind of hero to expect what kind of Messiah to expect. And in this case, what the author of the whole story is really like. Is he like the God on those billboards, or is he like the God who includes people like Naaman and widows rather than entitled religious people? Is that what God is like? Well, if he is, that's great news, right? Well, don't get all warm and fuzzy just yet, because Luke, this story that we read, is there for us to see how religious people respond once the real story is fully unveiled. And we may not like that so much, because most of us in here, this is probably your normal place on Sunday or a place like that, and what does that make you? What does that make me? religious people, right? Well, according to Luke, as well as the three other Gospels, religious people don't tend to like this new story, the real story, the story that God is much more gracious than we think He is, the story that might also be that God is more gracious than we want Him to be. Not us, right? God couldn't be more gracious than we would want Him to be, right? We would be tickled to discover that God loves the people of Iran and that Americans don't hold any special place in His heart. That would delight us, right? We would be ecstatic to find out that Maybe hell is not a place of eternal, physical, everlasting torment, but maybe it is a place of judgment, but it's limited. Or maybe that Jesus is talking in metaphors. We would be ecstatic about that, right? If we were to discover that that might be true, we would never have trouble, right? Believing that God loves our angry, Trump-supporting uncle and longs to be gracious to Him. We would just expect that. We'd be happy about it. We would never have trouble believing that God loves LGBTQ people and includes them in His family. 
we would just jump for joy, right? Because for some of us, that would be God's grace exceeding the boundaries of our expectation. And wouldn't we delight at that? Wouldn't that be good news? Suddenly, everyone is alert. Everyone is looking at me. Am I stepping on any toes yet? Good. (laughs) I hope I am. I hope I'm stepping on my toes. Because Jesus didn't just kind of step on toes, and I'm not putting my place in his shoes because I don't want to be driven out of town. I don't want to be crucified. I don't have a martyr complex. But the gospel does offend people. And who does it offend the most? It offends religious people. It offends church people. Because here's the thing. I'm not telling you this just to provoke you. I'm telling you this because we all need to hear it. We all need to understand that we don't begin to see the extravagance of God's grace for us personally until we see it going to the very people we think don't deserve it. We don't get to see the extravagance of God's love for us until we see God's love overflowing the boundaries that we have set for it. Embedded throughout the Old Testament in seed form is this vision of redemption that Jesus amplifies, that He turns up to 11. That the extreme breadth of God's grace is always surprising. It's always unsettling. And most often, this breadth is most threatening to religious people. Religious people being those who tend to show up for church on a Sunday morning. The writer Brennan Manning says, Jesus did not die at the hands of muggers and rapists and thugs. He fell into the well-scrubbed hands of deeply religious people. When Jesus read this passage, He left out something that If any part of you resonates with this kind of fear-based invitation to God, he leaves out something that is utterly shocking. He quotes Isaiah about the blind receiving sight, the prisoner going free, good news for the poor, so forth and so on. We're with you. But Isaiah ends this prophecy this way, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God. Where did Jesus stop? Were you paying attention when Twyla read? He didn't read that last part. He read the blind receiving sight, so forth, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor, and then he sat down. Jesus doesn't quote the part about the day of vengeance. Now, is this because Jesus doesn't believe in all of this vengeance stuff and justice? You know, that judgment stuff. We, we, we want to start this thing new. And we want people to come. We want the young people to come. We want the millennials to come. And so we need to excise all of this judgment stuff. Is that what Jesus is thinking? He doesn't omit it because he doesn't believe it. He omits it because he comes to fulfill it. You see, he believes that the primary way that God issues forth judgment the justice due for all of the things 
the terrible things that we do to ourselves, to each other, and to His creation. The primary way that He deals with that is by His Son coming and enduring that very injustice in its most amplified and malignant form. That is the cross. You see, there on the cross, He says, bring it to Me. Lay all of that on Me. It doesn't mean that Jesus doesn't believe that God will bring justice. That God will bring justice to the oppressed. And that He will bring vengeance upon the oppressor. That is not why He omits it. He omits it because now God's grace is overflowing its banks one more time in a new way. And that God Himself takes that injustice upon Him and that vengeance upon Him in its most malignant form. And therefore, none of us should presume, should dare to presume, that we can pass judgment on anyone else, especially those who seem to be the most logical candidates of our judgment. Because if you do, you become the most logical candidate. Do you see how that works? I know. I'm sorry. But this is Jesus 101. It really is. His hearers were furious. Furious enough to kill Him. You can't be saying that, Jesus. Does Jesus ever make you mad? Do you ever think, Jesus, are you sure? That you want to be gracious to that person? That you want to include that group of people? You see, if you are a recipient of God's grace, it isn't because you were born into the right country, into the right family, into the right ethnicity, into the right denomination. It isn't because you've made the right behavioral choices. But all of us get in through extravagant grace. And all of us are bound to God by the cross. And one of the ways that we know that we are in, that we know that we are bound to God by the cross, is that we don't recoil when anyone gets in. And that we see our calling not in circling the wagons around our religious community, around our ideological tribe, but by joining Jesus in bringing good news to the poor and in seeking freedom for prisoners, in pursuing liberation for the oppressed and proclaiming not go to church or the devil will get you, not you should be really afraid, but proclaiming the year of God's favor. Let's pray. Father, I pray that whatever offense I might have offered or added, I pray that you would help all of us to see through that and that we would see the offense of the gospel and that we would be able to distinguish what our ideology adds to the offenses and to claim that that is why people might be mad at Christians, that we would hopefully be able to see the very basics 
of what is offensive about the gospel, and that is grace. That is that you include the unworthy, especially those who are unworthy in our eyes. And I pray that we would put ourselves in the place to be offended by that every day of this new year. That we would find primary offense in the fact that we were included. And that therefore we would jump for joy. And that we would live lives of delight. That we would be delighted to be included in the voice that's proclaiming the year of the Lord's favor. And I pray that that year would metaphorically be this year in a real way. I pray that this church and these dear people that I love, that you love, that they would be included in the year of your favor. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.